the planets obeyed. Section 7.2, Kepler's Laws. First of all, they went around the sun in a shape, a curve called an ellipse. <coughs> that doesn't just mean an oval. It's a very specific and precise curve. The one you get by taking two tacks and a string, or more mathematical, the locus of all points, the sum of whose distances from two fixed points are a constant. Or, if you will, a circle foreshortened is an ellipse. That was the first observation. The second one was that the planets do not go around at a uniform speed, but when they're nearer the sun, they move faster than when they're further from the sun, slower. In what way? In precisely this way. That if you look at the planet at two successive times, let's say, a week apart, and draw the two lines from the sun that encloses a certain area, if you did it in another part of the orbit here, where it's further away, the area enclosed in the same length of time day a week would be the same. So we say equal areas are swept out by the radius vector in equal times, and that determines the speed around the orbit. <coughs> Finally, there's a third law, which was discovered by him much later, which is of a different category than the other two, because this doesn't deal with a single planet like these, but this relates one planet to another. And it says that if you compare two planets which have different orbits of different sizes, and measure the size by what is technically called the semi-major axis, which is just a half of this distance across here, that the length of time the planet takes to go around in its complete cycle varies as a three-half power of the semi-major axis. To, to make it simpler, if the planets went in circles, and they nearly do, then the time it takes to go around would be proportional to the radius of the circle to the three-halves power. But it's a little more complicated when it's an ellipse. Section 7.3, Development of Dynamics. Well, while, Galileo, while Kepler was discovering these laws a little bit later, Galileo was studying the motion of uh, matter. See, a problem, excuse me, the problem is, of course, even if you know this, what makes them go around? And in those days, one of the possible theories that were proposed was that what made the planets go around was that they were behind them here located invisible angels which are beating their wings and driving the thing forward. As you'll see that this theory is now modified. In order to keep, it turns out that in order to keep them going around, you need the invisible angels to be flying in this direction and to have no wings. Otherwise, it's a somewhat similar theory. Now, Galileo discovered a very remarkable fact about motion, which was essential in order to understand the, the reason for these laws. <clears throat> and that is the principle of inertia, which is this, that if you have something moving and a unit just going along and nothing touching it, just not disturbed in any way whatever, Galileo realized by some experiments and generalizations and idealizations that <clears throat> he proposed that it would go on forever, coasting at a uniform speed in a straight line. In other words, if nothing disturbs an object, it'll keep on coasting at a uniform velocity in a straight line. Why does it keep on coasting? Maybe it's the angels, but we don't know. But at any rate, that's the way it is, that unless this 
Then Newton modified this idea and said even more, that if you want to change the motion, you do it by a force. If you want to speed it up, then if it sees it or it gets speeded up, when a force is applied in a direction of motion, it gets its speed changed into a new direction if a force is applied sideways and it's deviated sideways. So uh, Newton added the idea that you need a force in order to accelerate, that is to change the speed or the direction of the speed, either to accelerate it or to deviate it from the straight line motion. So as, for example, if you have a stone whirling around in a circle, it takes a force to keep it in the circle, and you have to pull on the string. In fact, the law is that the force, that the acceleration produced by a force is inversely as the mass. The heavier it is, or the force is the mass times the acceleration. So the more massive a thing is, the stronger the force. You can measure the mass by putting other stones on the end of the same string and making it go around the same circle in the same speed then you'll find you need more or less force, and the amount of force is a measure of the mass. A more massive object takes more force. Now the brilliant idea that is the result of all this is that the force needed to dry, keep the planets in their orbits. Let me take a circular orbit for a moment. It's a little easier, but it's just, it's just as true. If this is the sun, we forget about the ellipsis of kind of a circle that the force is not needed to make it go this way, tangential. The angels don't have to fly that way, because that way it would coast anyway. But if there were no, nothing here at all disturbing, it would go off in a straight line. But the direction of the deviation of the actual motion from the line that it would have gone if there were no force is then, as you see, this way at right angles to the motion, not in a direction of motion. In other words, on account of the principle of inertia, the forces needed to drive the planets around the sun, or to control them, is not a force around the sun, but a force toward the sun. Well, when there's a force toward the sun, then the sun might be the angel, of course. Section 7.4, Newton's Law of Gravitation and they get a better chance at understanding everything. In other words, by having understood more about the theory of motion, it was appreciated that the sun could be the seat of the organization of the forces which governs the motion of the planet. This was Newton's discovery. And now Newton proved to himself, and perhaps we'll be able to prove it soon, that the very fact that equal areas are swept out in equal time is a precise signpost of the proposition that all of the deviations are precisely radial. That this is a, just a direct consequence of the idea that all the forces are directed exactly toward the sun. If there were any other components in the directions other than toward the sun, this wouldn't be true. So he realized, after guessing, that this proposition of, of Kepler's could be summarized by saying all forces are toward the sun. And next, by looking at this one, it is possible to show, by analyzing this one, that the forces are weaker the further away you are. If you compare two planets at different distances, that the one that's further out is weaker, and you can chase through from this one and discover that the force goes down inversely as the square of the distance. That means if another planet is three times as far away, the force exerted on it by the sun is one-ninth as much. So with a combination of these two, he concluded 
that there would be a force inversely as a square of the distance and directed in the line between the two objects. To be a man of considerable feeling for generality, he supposed, of course, that this wasn't only the sun holding the planet, but since it was already known, for instance, that the moons of Jupiter went around Jupiter, undoubtedly Jupiter is exerting a force on its moons, and the moon of the Earth goes around the Earth, so there's a force holding the moon from the Earth, and he already knew of a force holding us on the Earth, and so he proposed that this is a universal force, that everything pulls everything out. And furthermore, the next problem was whether the pull of us on the Earth is the same as the pull on the moon inversely as the square of the distance. An object on the surface of the Earth falls 16 feet in the first second, in one second, if you let it from rest. And the moon falls how far? Well, since we know if the Earth is here, you say the moon doesn't fall at all. That's a very interesting point. If the moon had no force on it, it would go off in a straight line. Instead, it goes in a circle. And so it falls away from where it would have been if there weren't any forces at all. Now you can figure out from the radius of the moon's orbit, which is something like 240,000 miles, and how long it takes to go around, which is 29-something days, how far the moon moves across this way in one second, and then calculate how, how far is this fall in one second. So you can figure this out by knowledge of the moon's orbit and its distance. It turns out to be roughly, I haven't figured exactly, but a twentieth of a second. A twentieth of an inch, excuse me. It falls a twentieth of an inch in a second. Now, let's see, that fits very well with this.